Well, happy Resurrection Day, and He is risen. He is risen indeed. If you've got your Bibles this morning, and I hope that you do, please turn in them to, <coughs> excuse me, to First Peter. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles available in the lobby, and if you don't have one at home, please take that home. That is our gift to you. Uh, we would like nothing more than for you to walk out this door this morning with a copy of God's Word in your hands to take home and read and soak into your life. This morning we'll be in 1 Peter chapter 1. <clears throat> I am thrilled that each and every one of you are with us this morning. Whether you are a longtime member or whether this is your first time in this building, we are sincerely glad that you're here. But a special word of welcome to those that aren't normally here. Uh, that are visiting with us this morning. Three things that I want you to, to know this morning at the outset. Number one, we truly are glad that you're here. We are thrilled that you've chosen to worship the Lord this morning for whatever reason. Uh, maybe you tagged along with some family members and uh, you're kind of enduring this this morning. Or whether you're a college student and you just figured that Decula, Georgia was the place to be on spring break. Uh, or uh, whatever the reason is, uh, we're glad you're here. We're glad you're here under the proclamation of God's word, and we pray that God meets with you this morning. Secondly, we want you to know if you're visiting with us that you're welcome to come back. We do this every Sunday, uh, not just one Sunday a year. We gather each and every Sunday to do what we've done this weekend, to remember the cross and to celebrate the resurrection, and to consider its implications, the implications of both of those things for our lives today. And we would like nothing more than to have you come back and con continue to consider the implications of those true historical events on your life. But the third thing that we want you to know is that we really believe this stuff. This is not religious cliche. This is not just something that we walk through the motions of. We really believe this. Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of our triune creator, was sent to earth to rescue sinners. He was born in Bethlehem as a man. He took on flesh and became one of us. He lived the perfect life. He achieved with his life of perfection the righteousness that we could not in a thousand, a million, a billion lifetimes. And then he was put to death on the cross. Like he was literally nailed to the cross. That's not just religious cliche. He was nailed to the cross. The son of God, the, the, the God man put in human flesh. He was nailed to the cross for our sins. He was put to death on that cross to rescue those of us who had turned against him, which is all of us. But then three days later, he was risen from that dead, from that grave. He is no longer dead. He is alive. We really do believe this stuff here. And this morning, we get to celebrate this in a particular way. We celebrate the resurrection today. And why do we celebrate it? 
Why do we make such a big deal of the resurrection? Well, it's because of what it accomplished. That along with the resurrection and the crucifixion, all that, that, that God accomplished through those acts for us, that's what we celebrate. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. The implications of the resurrection. From their life-changing The implications of the resurrection are life-changing and eternity-shaping. They really are. And we want to consider them this morning, particularly the living hope that Peter says is ours because of the empty grave. So follow along in your copy of the Scriptures, 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 3 through 9 this morning. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith For a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you so much for the reality of this morning and what it means, what it represents, what it has represented throughout the ages, throughout Christendom, what it means for us this morning, that the grave no longer holds us captive, that sin and death have been defeated once and for all, for all those who trust in Christ alone. Father, we thank you so much for the sobering reality of Friday night and the glorious good news of Sunday morning, that at the breaking of the dawn on that third day, the grave was empty. They went in and found no body because your son had defeated sin and death and had proved that through his resurrection. Father, We ask that this morning, that not only would we celebrate the good news of an empty tomb, but that we would come to grips with what that means for our lives today, as we understand what it means to have the living hope that is ours through the resurrection. So I pray, Father, that you meet with us in a real way, not just to understand what this text means, but Lord, so that you might sanctify us to look more like Jesus, so that you might be glorified in and through our lives as a result of truths that you will impact our lives with this morning in this passage. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So the Apostle Peter in this passage is talking about a living hope. A living hope that is ours because the tomb is empty. We will say this over and over again. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What is this hope that the Apostle Peter speaks of? Why do we need this hope? And how can we have this hope? He begins in verse 3 by saying, Blessed. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Friend, that is the language of worship. Blessed be God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the language of he's worshiping God here, worshiping the Lord, who is God, and who is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Apostle Peter here is worshiping God, and this is one of the hallmarks of one who has this living hope that Peter speaks of in this passage. That they would instinctively worship God. That that as a result of this living hope, they would be compelled instinctively to worship God with both their lips and their lives. That their hearts and their lives would be characterized by genuine and heartfelt worship. Because it's who they are. It's who they are and it's what they do. People who have this living hope will instinctively worship God. Now, worship is not just something that we do when we gather on the Lord's day and sing songs to Him. It's what we do 24-7 as we live our lives in submission to our King, desiring to give Him honor and glory for who He is and what He's done, and desiring to, to please Him and to honor Him. That is worship. And that is what people do who have this living hope. And so friend, before we even begin to talk about what this living hope is, you might ask yourself, do I treasure Jesus Christ as my high delight and my most supreme treasure in life? Because if not then perhaps that might be an indication that you don't have this living hope. Now Peter gives us here a particular reason for why he's praising God in this instance. He says in verse 3, verse 3 continues, According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So he's praising God. And he says he's praising God because he, God, has caused him and caused us, both Peter and his readers and those who have placed their faith in Christ, that God has caused us to be born again. And so the ground of Peter's praise is that God has caused him to be born again. He's experienced a new birth. And so the ground of our worship must be our new birth as well. That God has caused us to be born again. We know that this is not the only place that Scripture speaks of the need to be born again. Jesus speaks of this very thing to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Nicodemus, this 
high and mighty Pharisee in Jerusalem. He comes to Jesus under cover of darkness because he doesn't want others to know that he wants to know more about what Jesus is saying. He wants to understand better Jesus' teaching. And in that situation, in that circumstance, Jesus tells him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. And in that setting, he goes on to explain to Nicodemus that this is not about being born again physically, but experiencing a spiritual birth. And we need this spiritual birth because the Apostle Paul will tell us in his letter to the Ephesians that apart from Christ, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. Paul writes that letter to people who are physically alive, and he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So he can't be talking about physical death because he's talking to people who are physically alive. He's talking about spiritual deadness. Scripture is clear that because of sin, we are spiritually dead. And to be spiritually dead is to be hopeless. Because a spiritually dead person can do absolutely nothing to change the condition of a spiritual deadness. Any more than a physically dead person can do anything to change the condition of his physical deadness. To be spiritually dead is to be hopeless. And we are hopeless because of our sin. But Paul goes on in that passage out of Ephesians 2 to say not only are we spiritually dead, it gets worse. And I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but church, if we don't come to grips with this bad news, then the glory of an empty tomb will just be blah news. If that's going to be glorious news for us, then we've got to come to grips with the bad news. And the bad news is that not only does our sin make us spiritually dead before God, but we're also deserving of eternal judgment because of our sin. Our rebellion against God manifested in our sin against Him has made us deserving of God's wrath, which is His anger against sin. He says in Ephesians 2, 3, we were by nature children of wrath, which means that by our very nature, as a sinful human being, we are guilty before God and deserving of eternal punishment from Him. Now that is hopelessness. And no kind of hopelessness in this world can compare to that kind of hopelessness. This kind of hopelessness is eternal. It's never-ending, and it's unchanging. There's nothing that we can do to change it. We can't work our way out of this problem. Paul says that, that we're saved by grace, not by works, lest any man should boast. So we can't work our way out of it. We can't serve our way out of it. We can't tithe our way out of it. We can't even worship our way out of it. Our condition of spiritual deadness and of deserving eternal punishment is utterly hopeless. But Peter says here in 1 Peter, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter is praising and worshiping God. Why? 
Because God has given him new life. God has caused him to be born again. What was spiritually dead is now spiritually alive. And note that Peter says that God is the one who did this. God has caused him to be born again. Peter didn't do this. Peter was spiritually dead. Peter could do nothing to save himself. He needed God to come and save him. And that's exactly what Jesus did. For Peter, for Peter's readers here, for everyone in this room who's come to faith in Christ, God has caused you to be born again. What was spiritually dead, he has caused to come alive. He's made you alive in Christ. That's what he did in my life. I was 17 years old, captain of my high school football team, star quarterback, stud on campus, all that. I didn't think I needed to be saved. But God used some friends of mine whom God has saved by grace through faith in Jesus who were faithfully following Jesus. God used them in my life to show me this bad news, the bad news that we've just wrestled with. And as a result of that, I realized that I was spiritually dead and because of my rebellion against God, that I was deserving of eternal judgment. And, and, and when I began to come to grips with that, I realized how sinful I really was, how lost I really was, and how hopeless my predicament was. And upon realizing that, God was gracious to show me the hope that is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That he sent his son to live the perfect life that Clearly at that point I realized I had not done and could never do. And that he sent his son to a cross to endure the punishment that I deserved to pay. And that three days later he rose from that dead proving that everything that he said was true. That he was the son of God and that he had defeated sin and death forever. And in that moment... God gave me the faith to trust in him. Paul would say later in that Ephesians 2 passage that we've been referring to, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves. It is the gift that works so that no one may boast. God graciously gave me the gift of faith, and with this faith he saved me by his sovereign grace. You know what grace is, right? Grace is, is, which, is when you get what you don't deserve. And because of our sin, what we don't deserve is forgiveness. What we don't deserve is reconciliation to God. What we don't deserve is justification. What we don't deserve is to be made whole. What we don't deserve is eternal life. But by God's sovereign grace through faith in Christ, that's exactly what he gives us, what we don't deserve. Mercy, on the other hand, Peter says here that that this living hope is according to God's great mercy. Mercy is when we don't get what we do deserve. And we've already been talking about this morning what what we do deserve. What we do deserve is eternal judgment and punishment because of our rebellion against a holy God. But by the mercy of God, those who trust in Christ alone 
are spared what they deserve. This living hope is ours by God's grace and mercy shown to sinners like you and I. And so there are two conditions that Peter gives for this living hope. Number one is to be born again. We must be born again. And so, friend, let me just ask you, are you? Have you experienced this new birth? Are you spiritually alive in your innermost person or are you spiritually dead? And you might say, well, how, do I know? how would I know? How, how do you know if you're spiritually alive or spiritually dead? Unfortunately, there's no, there's no test that I can give you. There's no blood test where, where the results will come back, spiritually alive or yeah, st- still spiritually dead. So how do we know? Some might say, well, 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 look at their lives and see if there's fruit, see if there's spiritual fruit in their lives. And that's absolutely true. Someone who comes to faith in Jesus Christ is transformed by the gospel and you begin to see fruit in their lives. Spiritual fruit in their lives like obedience to Christ, following Jesus, reading his word, liking, loving to read his word, wanting to follow him more obediently, wanting others to follow him, wanting to lead others to faith. These are Examples of spiritual fruit that we can expect to see in a genuine follower's life. But you know, we can fake all that. We can fake spiritual fruit. And we can deceive others and sometimes even deceive ourselves that we are born again when in fact we are not. The only foolproof way to know if we are born again is whether or not we have faith in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Whether or not we have faith, we put our trust in his perfect life, his substitutionary death, and his victorious resurrection as our only hope to be rescued from what we deserve. If our faith is in anything other than Jesus, or if our faith is in anything in addition to Jesus, then we are not born again. If our faith is in our church attendance, if our faith is in our good works, if our people in our spheres of influence out on the landscape of humanity, I'm much better than average with respect to morals and ethics. Friend, that hope is vanity. The only hope that we have to be rescued from what we deserve deserve is faith in Jesus Christ alone. Faith in Christ crucified and resurrected on our behalf alone. And that's why Peter says here that God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So that's the second condition for this living hope that Peter describes here, that it's absolutely 100% dependent on the resurrection being true. The resurrection is absolutely critical to our having this living hope. You see, if Jesus is still in the grave, then we have no living hope because we're still in our sins. We're still hopeless in that predicament. Paul puts it this way as he writes to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised... 
then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If Jesus is still in the grave, what does Paul say there? Our preaching is in vain, not just on Easter, but every Sunday. This is a waste of time if Jesus is still in the grave. Your faith is in vain. We are found to be misrepresenting God. The elders, the teachers who, who, who preach God's word to you are, are, are misrepresenting God in that case. Because we're saying that God raised Jesus from the dead if he did not. Your faith is futile. You're still in your sins if Jesus is still in the grave. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ. In other words, those who have died hoping in the resurrection, well, they've just died. And they've got no hope after that. And we are of all people most to be pitied. If Jesus is still in the grave, then we are hopeless. But thank goodness, God follows up what Paul says there in 1 Corinthians 15 with verse 20, the very next verse. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The tomb is empty. Jesus is not in the grave. He defeated sin and death. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And he says here that his resurrection is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Meaning he's the first, but he's not going to be the last. Jesus' bodily resurrection is a template for the resurrection that awaits all those who are followers of Jesus Christ. So this living hope is ours through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so we've talked about how, as as Peter says, the resurrection, the, the empty tomb is connected to our worship. It's connected to our new birth. But then beginning in verse 4, Peter goes on to tell us more about this living hope, what it does and what its implications are for us. First, our living hope points us to a glorious future inheritance. We, we have the living hope of a future glorious inheritance. He says in verse 4 uh, that we've been born again to a living hope, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Our inheritance as, as adopted sons and daughters of the king, our inheritance is, in a word, heaven but the glory of heaven is the presence of jesus christ the glory of heaven is not that the streets are paved with gold the glory of heaven is not that we will be able to eat and not get fat the glory of heaven is not that we will be reunited with loved ones or that there will be no more tears or suffering or even that we will have a resurrected body the glory of heaven is the very real presence of the lord jesus christ At the end of this fight, we get Jesus. All of those things are true and good, but the glory of heaven is that Jesus will be there. That's the best part of heaven. It's the best part of our inheritance. And I love how he describes our inheritance here. It's imperishable. 
It'll never perish. It'll never go away. It can never be taken from us, and we will never lose it. It's undefiled. It'll never spoil like fruit or food that we put in our refrigerator. After a time, it begins to spoil. Our inheritance in Jesus Christ will never spoil. The stain of our sin will never stain the reality of our inheritance that is ours in Christ. And it's unfading. It'll never fade. It'll never grow dim. It'll never lose any of the luster of its beauty or glory. Our living hope points us. It's a living hope of a glorious future inheritance. But secondly, he says that our living hope keeps us anchored to Christ in the present. Peter says that, that our inheritance that awaits us is kept in heaven for you. Then verse 5, you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And this means that while our salvation will one day be completed, it will one day come to its ultimate fruition. When God brings us home, Yet for now, in the meantime, he says, God's power guards us by keeping us in the faith. You see, the faith that's a gift from God, the faith that he gives us to trust in him, also keeps us anchored to Jesus. Not just for future glory, but in the present as well. And this is such good news for us. Because... As Peter says here, and as we know from the experience of our own life, that living in a fallen world is never easy and sometimes dreadfully difficult. Look at verses 6 and 7. It says, in, in this you rejoice. In other words, we rejoice that we have a living hope of a future glorious inheritance. We have, we have a, a living hope of, of a salvation that is ready to be revealed. We, we, have a, a, we rejoice in the living hope of that which is going to come. Though now, he says, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter is writing to persecuted Christians here in 1 Peter. He's writing to believers who had been scattered all over Asia Minor and knew suffering intimately. And he says to them that suffering and trials are sometimes a part of living in a fallen world. And that God often uses suffering to test our faith. To test our faith. And if our faith is genuine, if it's real, then it will be proven to, to be so through those trials. And he likens it to gold. That also is proven to be pure gold through fire. See, gold... Gold is tested and purified in the furnace of fire, while our faith is tested and purified through the furnace of affliction. And Peter says that as much as gold is worth, and it's no 
no coincidence that he uses gold here in this illustration. It, it was then, as it, as it is now, the most valuable of commodities, the most valuable of precious metals. He says, as much as gold is worth, the tested genuineness of your faith, he says, is worth much more. Why? Why is it worth more? Why does it hold such value? Well, because the, our faith does not ultimately come from us. If our faith came from us when it was tested genuineness, it wouldn't be that valuable. But because it comes from him, when it is tested genuineness, it is supremely valuable. The faith with which we trust in Christ comes from him. So consequently, it doesn't ultimately glorify us. It glorifies him. It glorifies the one who gave it to us. What does he say at the end of verse 7? The tested genuineness of your faith, which is worth much more than pure gold, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So thirdly, our living hope causes us to joyfully worship God with our lives. Listen again to these two verses. He says, in this you rejoice. You're rejoicing now in this living hope, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. And what was the purpose of those trials? Verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So you, you rejoice that the testing of your faith results in glory and honor and praise to Jesus. And friend, this is why we can, we can actually thank God for seasons of suffering and trial in our lives. Not simply because of the sanctifying benefit that there is to us through those trials, but also in principally because the tested genuineness of our faith that can only be proven genuine through that furnace of affliction will result in praise and honor and glory to our Redeemer and King. It will result in worship to King Jesus. And here's the thing that we need to, we need to see on Resurrection Sunday that the resurrection is the linchpin between our suffering and the worship of God. Because see, if, if the grave is still occupied, if Jesus didn't, didn't rise from the grave, then, then it doesn't matter how genuine our faith is tested to be. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, it's vanity, it's futile, it's a waste of time. But because the grave is empty, because Jesus did rise, man, the, the tested genuineness of our faith is worth much more than pure gold because it results in the praise and honor and glory of Jesus Christ. And we know that he deserves it. And so we rejoice that it results in that. And Peter concludes this section by saying one more thing about this kind of joyful worship he says in verses 8 and 9 though you have not seen him you love him though you do not now see him you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls L look at how paul describes the one who has this kind of living hope 
They love Jesus. They believe in Jesus. And they rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. I would submit to you, church, that that also is the language of worship. To rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Have you ever been that happy? Have you ever been that joyful? Where you just can't find words to express it and you're left speechless. You ever watched an interview after a national championship, whether it's the Final Four or Super Bowl, the World Series or the Masters or whatever? An interview, how do you feel now? Stumble over their words. They can't find words to express their joy in that moment. They are left speechless. Friend, this is the kind of joy that Peter says is the experience of everyone who is a follower of Jesus Christ day in and day out. It is a joy that transcends our circumstances. It is a joy that goes much, much deeper than superficial happiness. It is a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. To know that though we are sinners, deserving of eternal judgment to know that we are by our very nature objects of wrath enemies of God and yet he has redeemed us through his crucified and risen son he has rescued us and made us his own we who are dead we've been now made alive we who are enemies are now made his sons and daughters, adopted into his family, chosen by him to be his own. We who are recipients of his wrath are now recipients of his love. We who are hopeless, we now have a living hope. And this living hope causes us to joyfully worship God with our lives. And after all, that's the very reason for this hope to begin with. The purpose of our living hope is the worship of God. It's the reason why Peter even mentions it in this letter. Go back to verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's worshiping God. Why? According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. See, he begins and ends this passage in worship. Peter worships God at the beginning of the passage because of the living hope that he has in Christ. And then this living hope itself at the end of the passage is the reason, is the ground for more rejoicing and worshiping God. The hope that we have in Christ results in glory to God both in this life and in the next life. Both in this life as we live for him and serve him as long as he puts breath in our lungs. And that living hope results in glory to him in the next life when our faith is made sight. The living hope that we have in Christ, is it a blessing to us? Absolutely it is. No doubt about it. It helps us get through trials and helps us get through suffering. Because we're reminded that we're not shackled to sin anymore. We've been set free from it. it reminds us of the inheritance that we have in Christ. That inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. But ultimately, ultimately God has given us this living hope 
so that we might redound in joy that is inexpressible in our worship of him. He's given us this living hope so that he might be glorified with our lips and our lives. Our living hope that is ours by faith leads us to rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And it's filled with glory because it is focused on the risen Christ. If you have the hope of the resurrection this morning, if you've got the kind of living hope that Peter speaks of, the living hope of a risen Christ, you have that hope so that God would be glorified in your life. Not just so that life would be easier. Not just so that life would make more sense. He's given you that living hope so that God would be glorified in and through your life. That you would be led to rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So Christian, this Easter be reminded of that living hope. Be reminded of your hope in Christ. If you've come to faith in Jesus Christ as your only hope, to be rescued from the the penalty that you know you deserve otherwise because of your sin and rebellion against God, then be reminded that in Christ your sins have been atoned for. They've been covered over by the blood of Jesus that the Father looks at you now in Christ and he doesn't see your sin. He sees the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. Be reminded that in Christ you are now an adopted child of God chosen by him to be in his family. Be reminded that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And be reminded that because of the resurrection, sin and death have been defeated on your behalf. Your king condescended himself to put on flesh and become one of us. And he lived among us. He endured all of the temptations of mankind. He endured the suffering of mankind. And ultimately, he endured the suffering of being rejected and nailed to a cross, specifically to fulfill the will of his Father, to redeem sinners like us back to himself. And he did that for you, but he also rose from the dead for you. When we walked out of that grave, he was proving to you that he had defeated sin and death forever for you, brother and sister. Be reminded of this, and then let that reminder lead you to rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. But friend, if you're here this morning and you've not placed your faith in Christ, maybe you've been very faithful in church attendance throughout your life. Maybe you're relatively a good person. As we said before, as you look across the landscape of humanity to your left and your right and your spheres of influence, you say, I'm much better than average with respect to morals and ethics. But if you've not placed your faith in Christ alone, then you cannot lay claim to this living hope that Peter speaks of. You're still in your sins. All that bad news is still true. You're, sp- you're still spiritually dead. You're sp- still deserving of eternal judgment. Your condition, your predicament is still hopeless. But God sent Jesus to make a way for sinners like you and I for the hopeless to be given hope. And that way is not only through Jesus, that way is Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me, through faith in me, and what I accomplished on the cross. So if you want this living hope, if you want to be reconciled to God, 
you don't want that bad news to be true of you anymore, and you want to stand in the presence of Jesus and love Him, then your only hope is to trust in Christ. That is your hope. This Easter, friend, the gospel has been proclaimed to you. And I now plead with you to turn from your sin, to turn from your self-rule, and turn to Christ and His rule over you. Place your faith in Jesus Christ as your only hope to be rescued, to bring you back to Him, and to give you this living hope. Jesus came down from heaven for sinners like you. He lived a perfect life for sinners like you. He died on the cross for sinners like you. And He rose from the dead to defeat sin and death forever for sinners like you. Will you now come to Him in faith? Will you now trust in Him alone for rescue? May God be glorified as He leads you to do just that. I want to close with this quote by one of the Christian fathers, Athanasius. A marvelous and mighty paradox has thus occurred. For the the death which they thought to inflict on him as dishonor and disgrace has become the glorious monument to death's defeat. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the reality that we celebrate this morning, that the tomb is empty, that your son rose, defeated sin and death. Oh, Lord, may we never grow weary of saying that. May we never treat that as blasé. May we continue to be overwhelmed by that good news until you bring us home or Jesus returns. Father, we thank you so much for your perfect plan of redemption to rescue and redeem sinners like us back to yourself through the gift of your Son, his sacrifice on the cross, and his glorious resurrection. Father, those in this room, whom you have saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Father, may we rejoice in this, and may it lead to further rejoicing. May it lead to a life that worships and glorifies you. And Father, for those in this room who have not been saved by grace through faith, Father, we ask that gift that Paul talks about, that gift of faith, God, we ask that you would grant that to them in this very moment that you would give them the faith to trust in Jesus, in the quietness of their seat where they're sitting right now. Lord, that you would walk them across the line of faith, that they would simply agree with you about the bad news, that it's a result of their sin, and that their only hope is Jesus, the Christ. Give them the faith to trust in Jesus as their only hope. Lead them across that line, Lord, and redeem for yourself another worshiper who will rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. To your glory, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.